0: And the second reading is from Mark chapter twelve. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, "Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity; you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar, or not? Should we pay, or shouldn't we?" But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise, up his, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow but also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord.
1: These regions and this realm my wars have got. This mournful empire is the loser's lot. In liquid burnings, or on dry to dwell, is all the sad variety of hell. These lines were written by John Dryden many years ago. But I wonder if this isn't the way we tend to view our current situation. Even the way we tend to view the church. These regions and this realm, my wars have gone. This mournful empire is the loser's lot. In liquid burnings or on dry to dwell is all the sad variety of hell. Certainly some believe this about the church today, don't they? It is a a kind of realm. There's Christians all over the world. Churches all over the world. And there's a perspective, isn't there? Perhaps some of us here this afternoon feel this way, that the church is a mournful empire, a sad variety. It's a kingdom won by many wars, and it's our lot, for better or worse, to dwell here. We're stuck. By the way, if that's you, uh, welcome to Christ Church Cambridge. Uh, lovely to have you here with us this afternoon. Uh, but in all seriousness, I, I think we uh, must compare this criticism of the church with Christ's teaching. Because actually, in the book of Mark, what we've been studying over the course of the year, we've been learning what the kingdom of God is really like. Certainly, it's, it's been distorted, and there's many instances where the church has done wrong. And even today, there's many areas where we can improve. But we must not attribute our failings to Christ. Jesus said at the start of his ministry, It's there in in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The first thing he says in this entire book, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And as we learned in our last sermon, Christ is the cornerstone of this kingdom. There in chapter 12, verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. As the son of God and as the cornerstone of God's kingdom, Jesus can speak with authority on this subject. The good news is that the kingdom of God is not just another mournful empire. It's a very distinct kingdom. And what I'd like to do this afternoon is to learn more about this kingdom by by asking two questions of our text today. How is the kingdom of God ruled? And who does the kingdom of God contain? How is the kingdom of God ruled? Let's, let's look down, beginning at verse 13. Later, they, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So first we see that the kingdom of God, for now, tolerates opposition. Its messenger, its cornerstone, walks among people who don't agree with him. People who resist his message. The Pharisees and Herodians, as it says in verse 13, they come to catch Jesus in his words. Who are these antagonists? The Pharisees, writes one theologian, practiced a religion that became not a great inward experience, but the meticulous performance of a technique. The Pharisees believed that they could earn God's approval, And in fact, that they had already earned God's approval by following religious rules. The cornerstone of their faith was this religious law. This is why they resisted Christ's authority. The Herodians were much more of a political party who supported the dynasty of Herod. Though religious and sensitive to God, they believed that the solution to their problems lay with certain political leaders, political leaders that they placed before Christ. But even in their resistance to Christ, in the resistance of the Pharisees and the Herodians, God's sovereignty is demonstrated. It says in verse 15 that Jesus knew their hypocrisy. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he reveals this knowledge to them in the form of a question. Jesus asks, Why are you trying to trap me? This proves to to the disciples that Jesus knew the situation he was in. And it allows the Pharisees and Herodians to consider the situation for themselves. To consider why they were attempting to deceive the Son of God. So already we see that God is a sovereign king who listens to questions. He even tolerates opposition. And Christ, an answer to the question about tax, provides a great deal more information about how the kingdom of God is ruled. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, there's many interesting interpretations of this phrase. Uh, at one level, you could say it's, it's just an evasion. It's cunning. Christ is avoiding their antagonism. The Pharisees jab and Jesus parries. It's a boxing illustration for you. The Pharisees jab and Jesus parries. Okay, you might go a step further. You might say, like a popular psychologist today, he, he regularly, he, very, very, he often refers to this phrase as the creation of a revolutionary idea. The separation of church and state. Previously in, in politics, uh, and religion they were they refused. fused they were fused together but this teaching of Jesus allows us to separate the two so we can give to Caesar what is Caesar's we can pay our taxes and participate in politics and we can give to God what is God's we can worship however we choose religion and politics become compartmentalized actually i think the meaning of christ's response is is both more hostile and more reassuring than either of these explanations. More hostile and more reassuring. It's more hostile because it draws a sharp contrast between Caesar and God. They're different rulers. They own different kingdoms. At first glance, this might not seem like too great a point, but consider Caesar's image is is printed on coins, on pieces of metal, His authority is brought by the sword. Now, a good example of this is a diary kept by Julius Caesar, the the first Caesar of all, just 50 years before Christ came. It's called the Gallic Diaries, and and in this this diary, Caesar describes uh, his invasion of what is now France. In one town, he and his men kill nearly 40,000 people. Caesar writes that His men killed until their right arms were tired. Or in another battle, nearly 53,000 captives were taken. and They're sold into slavery. The lesson is that Caesar rules by force. Those who oppose him are killed or enslaved. But is the same true for God? In Genesis chapter 1, We read that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God's image is not printed on pieces of metal, but inhabited by flesh and blood. God's image is incarnate. It lives. And where Caesar gives death, God gives life. Where Caesar enslaves, God redeems. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. We read in Psalm 118. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. This cannot be said of Caesar. So now we begin to understand why Christ is the cornerstone. Why he is such a necessary part of God's kingdom. Because God, as Jesus points out, deserves our obedience. We were made in His image, yet we do not obey. We rebel against His rule. And instead of listening to Him, we often try to trap Him. We trust in our meticulous performance of technique. We look to other people, to leaders in society, or even in the church. And God, just like Jesus, is aware of our rebellion. He knows. He knows our hypocrisy. But if we are in God's kingdom, we do not receive death or enslavement. Unlike Caesar, God gives life and liberty. And he does not do this by ignoring our rebellion, but by placing it on Christ. Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, Paul explains to the Christians in Rome. We rebel, yet yet we receive life. Christ obeys, yet he receives death. And the proof or demonstration of this grace is Christ's own resurrection. How reassuring that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of Caesar. It is ruled differently because Christ is the cornerstone. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. As we think about this phrase, I, I wonder, in what parts of our lives do we feel as though there's no difference between Caesar and God? For those of us here today who are not Christians, perhaps we've never considered the extreme contrast between these two leaders. Both claim our allegiance, but only one is worthy. Only one is holy. For those of us who are Christians, the distinction between Caesar and God is equally important, because even after we've understood the difference between them, I find that somehow I always need to be reminded of the good news, of the truth that God's kingdom is ruled with mercy, that Christ and not my attitude or my behavior is the cornerstone. So that's how the kingdom of God is ruled. Let's consider our second question. Who does the kingdom of God contain? Let's consider this as we look down at verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven children, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. It will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So again, we have an instance where Jesus is challenged This time by the Sadducees, a religious group who did not believe in the resurrection, in life after death. And what might at first seem to be an obscure procedural question about marriage and remarriage, only relevant to theologians and scholars, is actually a question that all of us ask. Is there life after death? Because if not, how could we be part of God's kingdom after we die? Straight away, we, we have an answer to this question. There in verse 26, God himself says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob belong to him. Now, there's quite a lot more to learn from this answer. Three things in particular for us to consider this afternoon. The first is that the kingdom of God contains those who God says it will contain. This is why Christ begins his response there in verse 24 with the question, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures? This is interesting, isn't it? Because it's a way that Christ shows us that the scriptures are a way, are a place where we can learn about the nature of reality. It's also a place where we can learn about God's character. Moses lived over a thousand years before Jesus, yet Jesus refers to his writing as trustworthy. And there in verse 26, Christ tells us that he's referring to the book of Moses. This is another name for the first five books of our Bible. And in Genesis, we find that God promises Abraham that, I will make you very fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So the point here is that God promises to save Abraham and then he saves him. The kingdom of God will contain those who God has promised to save in his scriptures. This leads us to our next point, because how does God make his promises come true? These promises that we find in Scripture, how do they become true? Well, God fulfills them with his power. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He promises to make him very fruitful, to make nations of you. And this promise is fulfilled by God's creative power. God allows Sarah, Abraham's wife, to conceive, she gives birth to Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. Jacob is the son of Isaac. This is the great power of God to save not just one man or even three men, but entire families, nations. Lord, thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another, as the psalmist writes. God is a refuge because of his power. This is why Christ says in verse 24 that we must recognize the power of God revealed in scriptures. But what else do we know about the kingdom of God? It contains those the scriptures say it will contain. It contains those saved by his power. It also contains the living. Look down with me to verse 27. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead. They are part of God's kingdom, and so are alive today. And as I've been thinking about this text this week, it's an extraordinary claim, isn't it? That God resurrects the dead. That he offers us life after death. Now one reason I think this is extraordinary is because Of how many Caesars there are in this world. Even when I I think of my own heart, I find something deeply plausible, something believable about Caesar. But I think the kingdom of God can also seem extraordinary because we're often like the Sadducees in, in verse 18. We do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Instead, we we have the wrong beliefs about the nature of reality and God himself. But as we've just discussed, the scriptures teach us that God created us in his image, that he is deserving of our worship, that he gives life and liberty to those in his kingdom. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So where does that leave us? Well, this is again where we see that Christ is the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. You are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Paul writes in Galatians. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So if we are Christians, then we are brought into the covenant that God made with Abraham all those years ago. We are brought into the kingdom of God This is why Christ preached, the kingdom of God is near, repent, and believe the good news. Caesar and those in his mournful empire have been dead some 2,000 years. But God and his kingdom are still alive today. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for creating us in your image. Help us to acknowledge this truth in all parts of our lives. Help us to give ourselves back to you in the same way as your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.